Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33, uh, 30, uh, 32 through the end of the chapter. I'll give you just a few more seconds to find it, and then we'll read it out loud. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so very grateful that you have not left us to our own devices. We are so grateful that even when our father Adam sinned, that you made a promise and that this was your eternal plan. And Father, we are so grateful that you have given us witnesses who have testified about who you are and about what you have done, about what you are doing and about what you will do, Father. We are so grateful for this. King Jesus, we praise you for your sacrificial life. Holy Spirit, we praise you for wanting to indwell people as wretched and as filthy as we are. And I pray that as we learn more about who you are and about your purpose and about your mission, Father, that we grow more like Christ. This is our prayer. We want to be like our Lord. We love you, and we are so very grateful to be able to gather this morning and to have the fellowship of the saints and to be able to have access to your word. And then I pray that you convict us to apply this. Father, we love you. King Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In about 200 A.D., there was a young lady by the name of Perpetua. Perpetua lived in Carthage, which was North Africa. When Rome started to put the chokehold on the, on the church, they sought this town out, and they sought her out and five other new believers. And all they had to do was go and make a sacrifice to an idol. That's, that's, that's all that was required, just make a sacrifice to the idol. And Perpetua, she would not do that. She refused to make this sacrifice. Because of this, she was imprisoned. She had a young son who was still nursing. They would bring the young son to her so she could nurse her baby in prison, and her father would plead with her, Perpetua, please just make the sacrifice. Think of the welfare of your baby. And her response to her father was, Father, 
Can a vase be anything other than a vase? She says, I am a Christian. Uh, months later, she goes before trial, her and the other Christians, and the judge told them, just, just make the sacrifice. Listen to your parents. Just make the sacrifice. And they would not, and they found themselves in the Roman Colosseum. About 100 years after that, there was a man by the name of Athanasius who lived a little further east in Africa. Athanasius had a different set of problems. Athanasius believed that God was a triune God. He believed that Jesus had no beginning and he had no end, that he was the God-man. Athanasius was brought up against Constantine, who Constantine sides what we would consider as a modern-day Jehovah's Witness. Arius. And over the course of the next several decades, Athanasius is expelled from the church five times. He saw this as a matter of the gospel because only God could bring forgiveness of sins. And we had to have a human sacrifice. We had to have a perfect human life. Athanasius wins in the end, and we are so very grateful for that because there is no hope apart from the God-man. I think of around the term of 1800, a little before that, there was a young man who was as vile as a sinner as one could possibly read about. He was so steeped in the slave trade, so steeped in it. He was, he was one of the few white men that could venture off to the jungles of Africa and the pestilences and the diseases and the bugs had little effect on him. So he was a unique individual because he lived on a riverbank in the Ivory Coast and he became a powerhouse in the transatlantic slave trade. And then he came to Christ. And he tried to be a good slave trader and it just, was, it just did not work. <laughs> you know, he, he, just, he just realized that this was a, certainly a conflict of interest. You could not be a proclaimer of peace and be in this business. And later on, he becomes an Anglican pastor. And there was a young man by the name of William Wilberforce who comes into his congregation. And John Newton and William Wilberforce brought down the transatlantic slave trade in the early 1800s because of the power that Jesus had worked through their lives. If we ever sang the song Amazing Grace, it was John Newton that gives us that glorious song. We have three different stories. All of them have the same end, and all of them have different ways of applying what the passage is today about, and that is faith. And faith is the assurance. It is the guarantee of things hoped for. We have a hope that the world does not have. And we were all once without that hope at one time. But we know that because King Jesus came and did what none of us could do and then gave his life for us, he lived that perfect life on our behalf. I like to use this analogy. It's great when we have kids in the room. When Jesus was 12 years old, he completely submits to his mother and father. Find me a 12-year-old that does that. Impossible. That's impossible. No, it's not because King Jesus did it. And one of them wasn't even his real father, it was his stepfather. King Jesus, he had righteous anger. When he clears the temple, he has to go make a whip of cords. It's not like he just acted out of 
just impulse. No, he knew exactly what he was doing, and he was justified in doing it because that was the house of prayer for the nations. That's always been the plan. Abraham, God tells him, you are going to bless all of the families of the earth. This is not just a Jewish thing. And praise God for that. That is the hope that we have, that the same Lord who came and lived and died for us will come back for us one day. He will give us glorified bodies and praise the Lord that this is not our best life now. Because this, this life right here has heartache and misery. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things not seen. We walk by faith, do we not? We, we get up and we go to work every day. We have children. We have wives, husbands, and we know that we must be persistent in this good news. We must be persistent. We must be a people on our knees because we have conviction because of what the Holy Spirit has done in our own lives, and we want others to have this same conviction as well. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see people saved. We want to see God glorified, and we want to be found being good, obedient servants when our Lord comes back. We do not want to be asleep. So, what inspired our three people? It is the Word of God. What inspires us today? It is the Word of God. That's why we're at Hebrews. So I'll give you just a quick overview of the book of Hebrews in case it's been a while since you've been in it. Uh, just a few themes. Starts off in chapter 1. Jesus is so much better than the angels. <laughs> For which of the angels did he ever say, come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Jesus is our true rest. We will have true rest with the same Lord who bought us and died for us. This is something world religions don't have. When you look at what they're saying, even like in Islam, when they're saying, hey, look at heaven, it, God's not even mentioned in heaven. But no, we get to be with the very one who died for us. Jesus, he is the better priest, is he not? He is far greater than the Levitical priest because he does not have to offer himself continually. He did it one time, one time for all. Because of him, we have such a better covenant, a covenant which was inaugurated by his blood, the perfect blood, and not the blood of goats and rams, who does not make the conscience of those who offer these sacrifices clean. Only through Christ Jesus can we have a clear conscience because we know who we have believed. He is certainly the better temple, and we are that temple. He has given us His Spirit. We are a people of faith, and without faith it is impossible to please God. So let's turn to our text. Let's start off in verse 32. The author of Hebrews, no one knows, but that's just my own, that's just my own, I don't, I don't know that for sure. I just, I lean towards Paul, I just, when I read through it, I go, man, this screams Paul, but I know we don't know that for certain. Uh, I also think that Luke's in it, but hey, who knows, we'll, we'll figure out in eternity, right? Uh, but the author says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. 
So in this chapter, he's went through the history of Israel. Well, not just the history of Israel. He's went through the history of man. He says, because he tells us, by faith, we know that everything was formed out of nothing. This is, this, is how we, this is how we know this, because the Word of God has told us there wasn't just a bang, there wasn't, there wasn't just a cosmic happening. No, we had a God who had a purpose, and he, he creates everything out of nothing, and then from this, the author takes us through redemption history. He takes us through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he works us all through this and gets, get in, he gets into great detail, which we don't have time to do that this morning. But then he he's, he's pauses right here because he said, I could keep going on and going on and going on and going on, but I just would not have enough time. So he mentions Gideon. Uh, I, I, I like Gideon, man. Gideon was a mighty man of valor who took on an army that was considered to be like locusts. And the closest thing I can get to locusts is I'm from central Arkansas where every year we've had the blackbird migration. I don't know if you guys have a blackbird migration or not, but there are literally hundreds of thousands of blackbirds that would come through our community every fall and every spring. And they would actually release city ordinances that if you had shotguns, you were, you were allowed to shoot and scare away the blackbirds in your town. And my brother and best friend, we would do that every day after school. That was, that's what we did, and then we would fill them up full of garbage bags. And I just can't imagine locusts, because I can imagine blackbirds, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. But it says that they were like locusts on the ground. And so Gideon takes his, his army of 32,000, and God dwindles them down to 300 people. And they surround the camp of the Midianites, and they break their glasses and start their fire, and they say, in the, for the Lord and for Gideon, and turmoil happens in the camp and they all turn against one another and God delivers them. And then he tells us of Barak, who Barak was during the time of Judges as well, where you have Deborah, she is judging the nation of Israel and they needed relief from the Canaanite king. And this man had 900 chariots of iron. I've never seen a chariot of iron. Uh, I'm a chaplain at Churchill Downs race side track. So there's like another small track that Churchill Downs owns, and there's a huge Guatemalan population there that we have access to, so we go and we evangelize them and uh, minister to them. And one of the things I love to do is I love to go watch the horses run. Even though I think gambling is such a vile thing to do, I love to go watch the horses run. And my son and I, we were there this week, and it was, it was workout time, and man, those they're out there just running. And when they would run by, you can feel the power of their hooves in the ground. And I, my first thought was, I, I thought, J.J., that's my son's name. I said, J.J., could you imagine being faced with an army of heavy horsemen and all you have is like a hoe? And that's it. You've got a hoe that's really not even a very good hoe. It's mediocre at best. It's not like a razorback hoe that you go buy down for you know, $30 at a store or doesn't even have a, you know, a good graphite handle or, or a, a, you know, a fiberglass handle. You just you have a hoe, and here are all these horses coming towards you. And if you read, read the Scripture, especially in, in Deborah's song, there are praise that we know that they are sitting on top of the mountain, and God says, look, I've given them to you. And these 900 heavy chariots go into the valley and the rain hits and they are trapped. And your horse is only good if you locked it into four-wheel drive before you went into the mud. 
that's, that you have to lock the hubs before you go into the mud. And Jabin forgot to do that. And because of that, Sisera flees as his commander flees and gets a tent peg driv right, driven right between his eyes because he fell for the oldest trick in the book. You're hungry, you're tired, you need something to, to eat. And she gave him, she being J.L., gave him some nice, warm, high-fat goat's milk and put him to sleep. And that was the end. And that's Barak. What about Samson? Samson, who... Here, I'm going to say this about the Bible. Here's one of the things I love about the Bible. And here's one of the greatest apologetic tools we can ever have with the Bible. The Bible speaks perfectly clear about who, uh, who humans are. We are sinful, we are vile, we are disgusting people. Samson was a Nazarite from birth, and he, like, he set his heart out to do everything that was not within the Nazarite code. Uh, you know, he ate honey out of the carcass of a dead lion, which you don't do that. That's, that's not kosher. Um, he took foreign women, but on his last day, after he had sinned and his hair had grown back, he prays to the Lord. And he said, Lord, let me have my vengeance. Let you have your vengeance. And he brought down more Philistines that day than the whole time he had been working as an Azurite. Jephthah. Jephthah, who was born of an illegitimate mother, but who obviously read the law because when the Ammonites came and they accused him of taking their land, what does he do? He recounts the narrative. He says, I did not take your land. This was the work of Moses. Why, why do you blame me for this? Why are you blaming my people for this? Haven't you ever read the story? This is a 300-year-old grudge you're holding against me, and I had nothing to do with this. Yet God delivers them from the hand of the Ammonites. And then there's David. We could go on and on for David. David is wonderful. We love David. A man after God's own heart who had the opportunity not once but twice to take the life of his very persecutor. Uh, my wife and I, we went to a conference. Uh, it was... I don't know if you guys know who Nick Ripkin is. He's uh, been overseas for like 35, 40 years. And he was telling us that when Christians are taken into captivity, you know, our first prayer, as it should be, Lord, grant us release. Um, he said, but more importantly, they say that in the persecuted countries, one of the best things they say, you know, you know your faith is working out is when, you're, when your persecutors come to Christ. He said, so... In those countries, they pray, Lord, don't deliver us until we see our persecutors come to Christ. Um, David had the opportunity. He could have killed Saul. He, he was probably way more of a man than Saul was, and he had him. He had him in the cave, but he showed mercy. Um, he knew that better days were coming, as did Samuel. Samuel was a man who... I cannot imagine what that must have been like to have been given up to somebody you did not know at age two or three when he was weaned. And then the very man who raised you, the first time you hear from the Lord is an oracle against this man. And when you wake up the next morning, the first thing that comes out of the man's mouth is, David, what did the Lord say? Or Samuel, what did the Lord say? And do not hold back anything from me lest what he said happened to you. And he has to tell Eli the truth. 
Eli, you have two horrible sons, and you do not discipline them well, and they have made a mockery of me and my law and my tabernacle. And he says, because that I will judge you. And Eli says, this is the word of the Lord. Let him do what is right in his own eyes, which if you've just come off the book of Judges, everyone's doing right in their eyes. So finally we have somebody who's saying, yes, he is the Lord. Let him do right in his own eyes. These men, women, we see that who through faith they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice. We think of Solomon and his wise judgment when the two, when the two women bring the baby to him. We think of when Saul's executioners come to David and they're like bragging, hey, we did it for you, David. And David says, why did you touch the Lord's anointed? They obtained promises. What about Hezekiah? The army is around him. Hezekiah is sick. And he pours his heart out to the Lord. And he said, Hezekiah, this will not happen to you. You have sought refuge in the right person. Stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel, I hope you never find yourself in a lion's den. Uh, but Daniel found himself in the lion's den. I heard, I was in Hebrew class the other night, and there's a young lady sits two seats down from me, and she was telling me that her dad, or her uncle was a missionary in Tanzania, and he's broken down the side of the road, and he's got his land cruiser up on a jack and changing the tire, and all of a sudden the lion comes up, and he gets in his land cruiser, and what does the lion do? But jumps on top of his land cruiser and stays the night. And I go, I told Sean, I said, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> I just really hope that doesn't happen. Uh, you're, you're just you're there, but uh, Daniel Daniel suffered no harm from the lions. Uh, they quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were delivered by one who is the son of man. They escaped the edge of the sword. Obadiah Obadiah he he hid a hundred prophets from Jezebel. He fed them. He made sure that they were safe. Of course, then Elijah come and kind of wrecks all that because Elijah means Yahweh is my God. And he says, Obadiah, you go tell Ahab, behold, Yahweh's my God. He says, that'll get me killed. Well, that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point here. But Obadiah, uh, we, he had a hundred prophets who escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. I think of Ezra. Ezra refused to accept protection from the king. Instead, when they went back to Jerusalem, they prayed that the Lord would protect them. And this, this was in a part of the world that they needed protection. There were marauders, there were bandits. Uh, you know, this part of the world is, is where this is still the practice even today. You don't travel at nighttime. You don't travel unless you have an army around you. Nothing has really changed. But Ezra, he did this. He was made strong out of weakness. Jonathan, Saul's son, he became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Think about the promises from the law that a thousand would flee from one man. And here is Jonathan. He's, he knows the Philistine garrison is on top of the hill, and he tells his armor bearer, let's go take him. Let's go. We got this. We have Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And that's exactly what happens. 
Women receive back their dead by resurrection. In verse 35 it says, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and then Elisha, the widow, the Shunammite widow, received back their dead sons. And there's a, there's a break in the text here. These are like all the really great things. Like, you know, the things that we kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, these, these are the stories we tell our children at nighttime before they go to bed, right? This is, this is, this is it. This, this is, these are the guys that we go to. And now we're going to see a different side of the text because it says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. I think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern in the mud was so thick it sank up to his knees. He was given bread of affliction. I know that's probably a metaphor. It was probably very bad bread. I'm not sure exactly what goes on, but I don't want the bread of affliction. But Jeremiah did this. He endured it. Um, I think of Micaiah. Micaiah goes to Ahab after all the prophets of Baal have prophesied that he is to go and be mighty in war. And the head prophet comes to him, he says, Micaiah, all of the prophets are in agreement. You need to give the same prophecy. And he goes and he gives the exact same prophecy, but it's in a very smug and sarcastic behavior. And Ahab goes, see Jehoshaphat, I told you, I told you all he would do is prophesy evil against me. He said the exact same words, Ahab, Where's, what's, what's, what's the big deal here? And then he told Ahab, he said, you know what, you want to know the truth? He said, I saw the Lord on his throne. And he said, I saw the children of Israel. They had no shepherd. And Ahab told him, he said, you take this man and you lock him up in prison till I come back. And Micaiah said, Ahab, if you came back, the Lord did not speak through me. They refused release because... they might rise again to a better life. We could take this to the New Testament, can we not? We have Peter. Um, we learn that Peter is crucified upside down. We know John is tortured. We know Paul is beheaded. Uh, we think of James, John's brother. We would say, what a waste of talent. He was an apostle, and yet he was executed only about 10 years into his apostleship. And guys, if the Lord had not a plan, that would be a waste of talent. But God's got a plan, and he wastes absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, we learned in our catechism that that was ordained before the foundation of the world. Our very steps are numbered. The hairs of our head, King Jesus tells us, are numbered. Some of us have more hair than others, but they're numbered. Not one single sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. Uh, 
not supposed to talk about Presbyterians, but my favorite Presbyterian is probably R.C. Sproul, um, the late R.C. Sproul. You know, he, he would say not one, he said, there is not one rogue molecule. Not one. Every molecule that floats in our atmosphere has got a plan and a direction that is from God Almighty. So James was not a waste. Verse 37, it says that they were stoned. Jeremiah, according to Jewish history, was stoned in Egypt after they took him down, and he kept prophesying. The end of Jeremiah, he's prophesying against Egypt. He's prophesying against the Jewish community that went to Egypt, and they got tired, and they stoned him. Uh, Zechariah, this is Second Chronicles 24. This is, Jesus says, on the geopolitical nation of Israel. He said, on this generation, those of you who are about to kill me, he said, I am going to put all of the blood from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah. Because in Zechariah, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, Zechariah, who was the son of Obadiah, who Obadiah was a great man of God, he hid Joash from the evil Athelia, and at eight years old, he anointed him a king, and they executed Athelia, and they, he had a wonderful kingship until Obadiah dies at age 130, and then he turns his back on Yahweh. And when he turned his back on Yahweh, Zechariah, Obadiah's son, who had been a faithful follower to King Joash, he comes and he confronts him. He says, and you're not doing what's right. You're not seeking the Lord. And he says, kill him. And they stoned him. And Jesus said, because you're about to stone me, I sent these guys, I put all of these men's blood upon your head. And the Pharisees and Sadducees go, bring it on. We want it. They were sawn in two. We were taught through Jewish history that Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh. They were killed with a sword. I can't help but think of John the Baptist, even though I know that's probably not what the author is referring to. But I just, I just think of John the Baptist. Uh, they went about in sheepskins. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Mm. Yeah. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Mm, I love that. We are not alone. We are not alone. We are not by chance. We have a God who has loved us so much that he gave us his only son, and he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of that son. And we have this beautiful, wondrous, glorious book that he has given us that we can read, and we can see that we are not alone. We have instructions on what to say, what to do, and we are so grateful that we are promised that one day we will all be made perfect together. These men and these women, they waited for that opportunity. 
it's still coming. It's like a freight train. You cannot stop it. That's our text. So let's look at this text and let's answer it. Let's ask four questions, okay? Question number one is, what does this text say about God? Question number two is, what does this text say about man? Number three, what does it say about sin? And then number four, we're going to ask, then what is our response to this text? We have the time span of several thousand years of all of these different individuals. Yet they all have the same God. So we learn that God is eternal, do we not? He is not bound by time. He is not bound by place like we are. We all arrive at a particular time, at a particular place, in a particular point in history, and God is the author of that history. We also learn that he has a plan. I love to read the book of Genesis all the way through in one setting. Because you go, oh wow, there's a sun coming. It's like you miss it when you don't sit down and just read it in its entirety. But when you read it, you go, well, who's this son going to be? <laughs> I thought it was going to be Abraham. No, that wasn't it. I thought it was going to be Isaac, Jacob. And you see that God is so gracious to his people because he is bringing forth, not only in the Old Testament times, but also now his one and only begotten son, who is much better than angels, King Jesus. We see from the text, through the stopping of lions, through the overcoming of fire, through the way that he put foreign armies to flight, that God is all-powerful. He is truly the God of all creation. We see in the text that he is a God of justice. He seeks justice, and the first part of the text we see where the men and women of God, God brings justice about by these people. And then the second part of the text, and I think this is a good tool for us, a good text to go to when witnessing to our lost neighbors. Because they always want to say, if there is a God, then why do bad things happen to good people? My Old Testament professor, uh, Dr. Denny Burke, he would say, you know, I hear people say that. He said, but shouldn't it be, why do good things happen to evil people? Because Jesus says we're evil. And when we see this text, yeah, we see that God is concerned about justice. There is no doubt about that. We, we have the law that, that tells us all these wonderful things. But then we could flip it on our lost friends and neighbors, and we could say, but, but what, about, what about those who, who did no wrong, who suffered flogging? who were mocked, who were imprisoned falsely? What about those who only helped and loved their neighbors, yet they were still executed? Yet, we know that God will bring justice upon these people. We read in the book of Revelation, there are all these souls who have been beheaded for the gospel, and they're under the throne of God, and they cry out, Lord, when? When will you avenge our blood? And he says, when your number is full. He is a God of justice. Sometimes he acts quickly. Sometimes it's slow. We learn from verse 40 that we are to be made perfect. If we are to be made perfect, there must be someone who makes us perfect. So we learn that God is perfect. We learn that he is gracious to deal with us. 
He deals with our humanness. There were mothers who received back their dead, grieving mothers, and God raised their children back to life. He deals with us in our trials and in our tribulations. God is a historian. He gives us an historical, true account that we can live by. We are the ones who have eyewitnesses. Think about it like this. 9-11 was 21 years ago. 2020, 21 years ago. 9-11 was 21 years ago. If someone were to write a narrative on the events of 9-11, most of us in this room could go pass or fail, true or false. We were there. We remember. I, I remember exactly where I was. My wife can tell you exactly where she was, and you guys would be the same way. The Gospel of Mark is written about 20 years after the life of Jesus. No one's, no one's recanting. No one's refusing. No one's refuting. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are all in the lifetime of people who knew the truth. Peter says, we did not follow cunning human plans. We were eyewitnesses. We beheld him in his glory. We saw the transfiguration. We saw him crucified, and we saw him resurrected. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, his biography was written 120 years after he died, and it was not published because it was so immoral that it had to be edited, and it did not come out 50 years later. You think any truth comes out of that? When you're trying to make him this ultimate guy? No, King Jesus, we have eyewitness accounts. God is a historian. So what does the text say about man? We are bound by time and place. Yeah, we, we, we better get this one right. Uh, was it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? We will give so very little for our souls. We are very, very foolish people. Uh, we have the weakness of being the creation. We, we need to be a people on our knees crying out to the God who has all, all authority. Uh, God has given us task. Our task right now is the gospel. Their task was to be the people who would bless the nations in the Old Testament. They were to seek justice. And he has given us the task on waiting on him. Because sometimes justice comes immediately, as we learn. Sometimes it is prolonged. We also know that we see this from man, that man is very sinful. For the fact that we have to seek justice tells us that there is injustice, is there not? The fact that we have to proclaim the gospel tells us that we are all in need of the gospel. So what does it say about sin? Since we are in the book of faith, the ultimate sin is unbelief. Unbelief that there is a just God who will judge every single person leads to an idea that there will be no day of judgment and you can just do whatever you want to do. And that's, that's, what, that's what the people of faith were dealing with. That's what we deal with every day. That's what we've all believed at one point in time. We, we do not like truth. So this is the sin. So how do we reply to this? What's our response? Ultimately, the easy, we need to be people of faith. So let's, let's refer back to our three, our three people at the beginning. Perpetua. Perpetua. She was just a believer. Simple. We, we, 
we, she wasn't this great expositor of the Word. She wasn't a great Sunday school teacher. As a matter of fact, she hadn't even received baptism yet. She was, back in those days, when you came forward, because the church was so persecuted, they would, they would bring you in after you, after you pr- profess Christ, and then they would, they would set you aside, and they would work with you for about a month, and then you were baptized. She was in that trial period when they came upon her. Now, I am from rural central Arkansas. I can remember growing up in a town of 676 people and there being a man who owned the gas station in the town, and he was an atheist, and the whole town knew it. You're like, that guy does not believe in God. What? That's crazy. There's atheists all around now. The fact that we are here today, this simple act of faith, it screams loudly. We've been living in Louisville for the past seven years. Last year, our elders were contemplating how do we go underground because our mayor and our governor have proclaimed this illegal. Now, thank the Lord we had a good attorney general who fought that. But still, the simple act of gathering, which is a biblical command, Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially as the day draws near. We are closer now than we ever have been. What we do here screams volumes of our faith. We must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together at all costs. What about Athanasius? Athanasius fought for doctrine. Doctrine is paramount. When the IMB asked us, why us? Why did you pick us? I said, because you have great doctrine and we don't have to fight about the Godhead. We don't have to fight about how we're justified. We don't have to fight about who the local church is. We don't have to fight about these so important gospel issues that Athanasius had to fight for. And yes, we will have to fight for these things. Sadly enough, we have to fight for these even inside the church because it was the church who kicked Athanasius out four of those five times. We have to fight for these things. And then what about our last one? It would be really easy for us to go social gospel on on our last example, John Newton. I grew up liberal Protestant. You guys, if you may not know what liberal Protestant is, um, I grew up works, 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 works. And then they take the gospel and they go, well, Jesus is he's a way. He's just a way. You can be a zealous person in Islam. You can be a zealous Buddhist, a zealous Hindi, and as long as you're doing good works, that's great. But it was the gospel that transformed John Newton. The gospel is always paramount. I think of abortion clinics, and I think of the the opposite, the anti-abortion clinic. We need to be proactive in speaking for the unborn. But if we separate that from the gospel, we've lost it. It, the gospel's our hope. That's, that's what we're working for. We know that this world is going to come to an end. Everything that we do, every mercy ministry that we are a part of, if our people don't know who we are and what we stand for when they show up, then we've done it wrongly. They need to know that we are, we are children of God and we are here. Yes, we want to help you. We do, man. We do. We, we want you to have 
We want you to have a good life. We want you to be prosperous. <laughs> but all these things are not guarantees. There is one guarantee in this world that we will all die and we will all stand before our king. And he will either judge us for believing or judge us for our unbelief. So, and what more shall I say? For time would tell, fail me to tell of Ignatius, Augustine, William Tyndale, the Judsons. We could go on and on and on, but we are the people of faith. So, in conclusion, I want to give you this. This is the following next few verses. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you very much for allowing me to be here and speak to you this morning. Let us pray. Father, we love you. And once again, we praise you for sending your son for us. We praise you for the convictions that you have given us to gather, to learn who you are. Father, thank you for this church, and I pray that you strengthen them in the knowledge of who you are. I pray that you go before them in their battles. I pray that you are there with them in their trials and tribulations, during sickness. And Father, I pray that during times of great joy and comfort, that they praise you and that they lift you up, for you are the giver of all things. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.